So today we're going to be looking at Obadiah, and then uh, next week we're going to be, uh, so we're only here one week, and then next week we'll begin to our study on uh, the book of Zechariah. So I wanted to kind of look at some Old Testament texts for a little while, and last, not last week, the week before, I said, I, I said to Pastor Phil at Twin Villages Church, I said, I'm not sure exactly where I'm headed I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I want to do a minor prophet. And he said, why don't you do Obadiah? And he was joking. And um, I thought, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I'll do that. So we're going to look at the book of Obadiah today. If, the way to find the book of Obadiah is you look at the clean part of your Bible. You look where your finger doesn't often go and you find the minor prophets. So you just uh, It's Joel, Amos, Obadiah. It's just before Jonah, right? So we're going to look at the book. We're going to read the whole book. It's, it's a short book. Uh, So, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Obadiah, starting in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over the calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster." Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob will be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them. So that there will be no survivor in the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. 
Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and those of the territory of Ephraim, the territory of and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So you've been spoiled the last couple of weeks. Last week, Keith Lawrence told me that he finished at 10 minutes of noon. And the week before, I had to finish early because we had to get to the Twin Villages church kickoff. So we've got some ground to make up and we've got some extra time is the way I see it. So we've probably got an extra 45 minutes today. Fortunately, Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament. So we're going to cover a whole book, but it is the shortest book. The name Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. And there are about 12 or 13 people who bear this name in the Old Testament. But there's no evidence that this Obadiah is the same as any one of the others. We don't know that. In fact, really nothing is known about this particular author. And I couldn't help but think as I was working through this text, what a wonderful way to be known. At the end of the day, what a wonderful way to be known, but to be known as a servant of Yahweh. Really nothing to be known about you. And I know that sounds crazy. Because we all want to leave a legacy, but really the legacy that we should all want to leave is to be known as a servant of the Lord. I have a shirt that I like to wear that says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Right? It's a quote by Count Zinzendorf, which is funny because he's known for creating a quote about preaching the gospel and dying and being forgotten. So he's well known. But we often, this is how we should want to live. In such a way that we are seen as merely a servant. We're not sure exactly when this book was written. But we do know that it was written at a time when the, nation, when the nation of Edom was taking advantage and had taken advantage of the fact that invading armies were attacking Jerusalem. There's probably four different times in history that this could have been written. We don't know exactly which time, but it doesn't matter for the purpose of our study today. But we know that they were taking advantage of the fact that Israel, that Jerusalem was being attacked. We know this from verses 10 and 11. For verses 10 and 11 say this, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. This is God speaking to Edom. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Now in order to better understand this book, we must first understand the relationship between Israel and Edom. It's a relationship that began in Genesis 25 with two twin brothers named Jacob and Esau. Listen to the words of Genesis 25 starting at, verses, starting at verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean the of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
But the children, verse 22, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came, and his hand was holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a great taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. And Esau said to Jacob, I'm sorry, uh, I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of the red stuff over there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, For behold, I am about to die. No doubt an exaggeration. Sell me, uh, give me some of that red stuff because I'm so famished. And he said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, give it to me. I'm about to die. Verse 32, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the Israelites, the Jews, were descendants of Jacob, and the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Esau receives this name Edom, which means red, in part for his red skin, which foretold of the fact that he would sell his birthright for red stew. And the tension that began in the womb continued in the lives of these two men's descendants throughout history. In fact, you might remember that Edom wouldn't let Israel pass through their territory on the way to the promised land. Or that both Saul and David fought against the Edomites. Or that the nation of Edom appears again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, sometimes as an ally, but often as an enemy, a source of opposition against the nation of Israel. Now it's important to note that while Obadiah is addressing the actual physical descendants of two men, the application extends beyond those who are physical descendants. And it extends beyond that to those who are spiritual descendants. In other words, does Edom represent a specific people group? Yes. But verses 15 and 16 of Obadiah make it clear that the same message applies to any nation or group that would oppose God and His purposes and His people. For verse 15 and 16 says this, "...for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations." As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because you drank, as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. All the nations, he says. So don't think of this book as being merely about Israel and 
and Edom. For Edom can represent anyone who stands in opposition to God. Those who oppose God today are, in essence, spiritual descendants of Esau. And we know from Scripture that those who are in Christ are indeed spiritual descendants of Israel. Galatians 3, starting at verse 6, says this, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And then he continues in verse 27 and says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There, Therefore there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That if we are in Christ, we are descendants of Abraham, descendants of Israel. We're spiritual descendants of Jacob. So in some sense, this book is not merely about two ancient nations, but about two families that exist even today. The spiritual house of Jacob, those who belong to God, and the spiritual house of Esau, those who oppose God and therefore are condemned by him. So the book of Obadiah can be broken down into two sections. Verses 1-16 through is the first section which addresses God's judgment on Edom, uh, mainly for opposing Israel, but as we will see also for pridefully really opposing God and His plans. And then verses 17-21, through the second part which speaks to God's deliverance of Israel. So on one hand you have God's judgment of Edom, and then you ha- on the other hand you have God's deliverance of Israel. Thus, the main theme of this book is that God is faithful. And He will carry forward His plans. He'll accomplish His purposes. And He'll rescue His people and establish His kingdom. So this is a book of judgment. Even as I read this book, I was just struck by the judgment that exists in this book. It is a book of judgment, yes. But it's also a book of encouragement. It should be a book of encouragement for those of us who are spiritual descendants of Israel. For those who are God's people, it's a book of deliverance and encouragement. It's a book of rescue in time of trouble. So without further delay, all that's just background. Without further delay, let's look at the first point in our sermon outline. The first point in our outline is, number one, the problem with sin. The problem with sin. We're actually going to start by looking at verses 15 through 16 and work our way backwards through the sections, if that makes sense. So we're going to start with 15 and 16, work backwards to verse 1, and then return to 17 through 21. Clear as mud? Good. All right, so 15 and 16 says this. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. We can't be exactly sure what you drank on my holy mountain means. There's commentators disagree. 
But it seems that at least in part, it refers to the fact that Edom celebrated the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's being attacked, and in comes Edom to celebrate, to drink on God's holy mountain. It also might be that they desecrated the temple even in their feasting and rejoicing. The picture that is painted here in verse 16 is incredible. God says, just as you drank in celebration of the defeat of Jerusalem, so also you will drink. You will drink of my wrath. And I will drink you up. You and all the nations, I will drink you up as though you never existed. You see, the problem is not just that Edom opposed Israel, but that in doing so, they opposed the purposes of God and opposed God Himself. And that's precisely what sin is. It's opposing God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They opposed God. Genesis 3, verses 1-6, through we see that. We see, we see the serpent come to Eve and he says, did God really tell you you can't eat from any, any fruit of the trees in the garden? She says, no, in fact, it's just this one tree and we, we, can't, we can't even touch it. If we touch it, we'll die. And he says, surely you're not going to die. It's just God doesn't want you to be like Him. Verse 5, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That the temptation was to be God. Was to be like God and to have control. And ultimately, eating that fruit wasn't so much about eating the fruit, but opposing God and His ordinances. And that's what sin is. Romans 14.23 tells us that whatever is not from faith is sin. And 1 John 3.4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. It says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So sin, sin is simply opposing God and His ordinances. It's saying, I will be my own God. I will make my own decisions. It's saying God is wrong. The fruit is good. And I will eat it. We don't have time to look at this now, but read Romans 1. You see this very clearly. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Why? Because they didn't honor God or or declare Him to be God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They denied who God was and did their own thing in their own way. And they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. He goes on and says they were haters of God. Because although they, did, they knew the ordinances of God, they didn't follow them. That's what sin is, folks. And I struggle with this. I want what I want and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. And when I sin, I'm saying, no, God is wrong. I'm right. This fruit is good, and I will take it. So having seen the problem of sin, number one, the problem of sin, that sin is a denial of God's authority. It's a declaration of war against Him. Now let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. Number two, the progression of sin. The progression of sin. Look at verse 3 with me. We're going to look at verse 3 just real quickly. It says this, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? He says, you live in these high places, 
You think you're safe in this cleft of the rock, in this secure dwelling place. Verse 4, he says, you built your nest, it's so high, it's like that of an eagle. You see, the problem is pride. In their pride, they thought that they could get away with it. They thought they knew better than God. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see this progression. 11 through 14. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. I want you to see the progression of sin that happens in these verses. They begin by standing aloof. So Israel's being attacked. What does that have to do with me? And they move from standing aloof to gloating over their brother's calamity. Verse 12. They gloated. Yeah, they're getting what they deserve. You know what? Those people, they're something else anyway. Verse 13. Then they enter the gate. And then verse 13 again. They looted their wealth. And verse 14. They cut down their fugitives. And verse 15. They imprisoned their survivors. And they took their fleeing refugees and turned them over to their enemies. So they went from standing aloof to gloating to entering the gate to cutting down their fugitives and stealing their possessions and imprisoning their survivors. Folks, sin begets sin. And you cannot stand aloof at God and His Word and His purposes. You cannot be indifferent You're either an enemy of God or you are a child of God and you want what God wants. Sin begets sin. That's why James 1 verses 14 through 15 says this, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's this progressive nature. First it's conceived. Right? We're we're talking about Uh, childbearing here. First there's conception. And then there's giving of birth. And then the child grows. And then the child dies. That's what James is picturing here. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it causes your death. Going back to our account in Genesis 3 that we talked about earlier, you can see this progression of sin there as well. For Genesis 3 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the, to the eyes, and the tree was desirable, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate. And then both of them, their eyes were open. The first she looked at it. There's nothing wrong with looking. But then she looked at it and desired it. And she took it and she ate it. There's a progressive nature of sin. That's why in Sunday school we talked about being on the alert. Being sober in spirit for our adversary, the devil prowls around like a, lo- like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, him, to devour. So we have to stand firm in our faith and resist him. So having seen the problem of sin, that sin is a denial of God's authority, it's a declaration of war against him, and that 
Number two, the progression of sin. That sin has a progressive nature whereby it builds and overtakes us. Or we are overtaken in it. Now let's consider thirdly the penalty for sin. The penalties for sin. Let's back up to the first section. Look at verses 1-9 through with me. Verses 1-9 through says this, The vision of Obadiah, thus, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. So somehow the Lord speaks to the nations, and He says, Arise, nations, go before Edom. He sends this message to the nations saying, Go, arise, and go against Edom for battle. And He says to Edom, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. You think you're big, but you will be small. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who lives in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down? Though you build high like an eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. You think you're safe. You think you're okay. You have this place of security and pride, and I will destroy it. You see, I've said this many times. It's not so much that pride, that God declares war on pride, on our pride. It's that our pride declares war on God. We're the ones who lob the missile over. We're the ones who in our pride say, no God, not you. I will be my own God. I will not submit to you. He goes on and says in verse 5, If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? He says, if thieves come and they break into your house at night, right? they're going to steal the important stuff. They're going to take your TV. They're going to take your stereo. They're going to take your iPhone. Whatever. They're going to take the stuff that's valuable. But they're going to leave something. They're only going to steal until they have enough. He says, but when I come, oh, it's not going to be like that. When I come, I'm not going to be like the thieves who only take what's... I'm going to take everything... He says, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? I mean, if somebody comes to your grape field, aren't they going to leave something? He says, but when I come, when I come in judgment, there will be nothing left. This is the wrath of God, folks. Verse 6, Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. He says, all these men who allied with you, who are at peace with you, they're going to deceive you and they're going to overpower you. They're going to eat your bread. They're going to set an ambush before you. I'm going to destroy the wise men from Edom. And your mighty men, they're going to be dismayed so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. You see, God's talking about total destruction of His enemies. You see, because the penalty for sin is death. Just as we read, or we alluded to earlier, Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. So also, Romans 6, 23 says that the wages, that which you earn for your sin, your right wage is death. This is precisely what God warned of in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 15, Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. 
The Lord commanded him, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you will surely die. The natural consequence of sin is death. So having seen the problem of sin, that it's a denial of God's authority, it's a declaration of war against God, the progression of sin, that there are no small sins because sin is sin, and it gro- but it also grows in us. The progression of sin, and then the penalty for sin, the penalty for sin is death. Now let's consider, fourthly, the promises of God. Look at verses 17 through 20 with me. And I know this is a heavy book when we think about God's judgment on these people. But the beautiful thing about the book of Obadiah is we don't need to be descendants of Edom. We know, in light of the gospel of God, that we can be declared descendants of Israel. And here in verses 17 through 21, we see those promises. It says this, but on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. On this holy mountain, some will escape, men will escape, and this mountain will be set apart. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob will be a fire. And the house of Joseph will be a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them, so there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. These are encouraging words for the nation of Israel. He says, verse 19, Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and also possess the territory of Ephraim, the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. And the deliverers will ascend on Mount Zion. God's going to send deliverers into and onto Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And he says, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah's point is that God will not abandon His people. This letter is written not only to Edom, but also to Israel. Israel was taken out of their land. They were, being, they were facing God's discipline for their not honoring the Lord. But in the midst of that, in the midst of these trials, even with Edom ransacking them, he says, he says that God, that He will not abandon His people. As verse 17 says, on Mount Zion there will be those who escape and it will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. In other words, God will intervene to rescue His people, to judge His enemies, and to establish His kingdom. And in the end, God's kingdom will come, and He will rule over the peoples of the earth. As the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1, he said, He will be great. This is speaking of Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. Unlike the proud who oppose God, those who submit to Him, who are spiritual descendants of Israel, they will enter His kingdom. They'll enter His kingdom by His grace. So how can we be sure that we are spiritual descendants of Jacob and not Esau? That's the question. 
Well, Jesus said in John 3, 3, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's the question we have to ask is, which kingdom are we part of? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Edom? Are we descendants of Israel or descendants of Esau? Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does it take to be born again? Well, Jesus said in Mark 1, verse 15, He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, therefore, He said, repent and believe in the Gospel. Turn from your sin and your wicked ways and believe the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, all of the Old Testament, including the book of Obadiah, points to the fact that God would ultimately and finally rescue His people. And we realize, living in the New Testament age, we realize that that Deliverer has come. His name is Jesus Christ. And that He died on the cross for our sins. We recognize that we have received that Deliverer and that He's coming back to establish His kingdom once and for all on this earth. That's why Paul, as we've been studying in Sunday school, wrote to the Thessalonians. And I love 1 Thessalonians 9 through 10 when he says this. He says, in saying that he understood their faith to be genuine, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And I've said many times, what I want on my tombstone when I'm lying in the, in the ground is servant of the Lord, right? Obadiah. I want to be known not as one who accomplished great things, but one who served the Lord. And then I wanted to say, here's a man who turned, who served, and who waited. That's what 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10 says. You turned to God from idols, and you, you served the living and true God, and you waited for His Son to return. That's what the Christian life is about. It's about going this way and you turn and serve the Lord and wait for the hope of His return. I long for Revelation 11.5. We hear this great sound, the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. We look forward to that. Day, because we know that God has promised that He will deliver His people. So in review, the problem of, we have the problem of sin, that it's a denial of God's authority. That the people denied who God was. And they declared war against not only Israel, but also against God Himself and His purposes and His people. We have the problem of sin. We have the progression of sin. That first they stood aloof and that quickly that there's no standing indifferent to God. That they became enemies of God. We have the progression of sin. And then we have the penalty for sin. Namely, destruction and death. But praise God, we have the promises of God. So the question is, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, how do we both individually and corporately and specifically take all of this and apply it to our lives? Well, number one, we need to turn. We need to repent and believe the Gospel. We need to see our sin for what it is. It's rebellion against God. 
We need to turn away from that. And most of us, many of us probably have done that. We've turned away from our sin. We've said, I am a follower of Jesus. I see my sin as rebellion against God. And I've trusted in Jesus Christ. I recognize that I am a sinner deserving of death, but that He died in my place so that I might live. Well then number two, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've done that, then it's our job to warn the nations. It's to proclaim the Gospel. To share the problem of sin, the progression of sin, the penalty for sin, and ultimately the promises of God. We're called to go therefore in all the world saying that the Kingdom of God is at hand and therefore repent and believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're to turn, to repent, we're to serve, we're to warn the nations. And number three, we're to wait. We're to praise God for His faithfulness. Praise God for His faithfulness to His people and His promises. That He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and His kingdom will have no end. So we long for the day when Jesus Christ returns to reign and rule physically here on this earth and we take comfort in the trials of this world, this life, knowing that we are awaiting His return. That though there are those who attack us, that there are those who attack His church, that there are those who oppose God, that even we suffer the consequences of our own sin, we know that a Deliverer is coming and the Kingdom will be the Lord's forever. So I encourage all of us, both as individuals and as a church, to turn from our sin, to serve the Lord, and to wait for the return of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I just pray that You'd be with us. That You'd help us to heed the warning in this little book. God, that we would be eager to apply the truth of these verses. God, that we would be eager to see and understand that we need to not be like the Edomites who oppose You, but instead, we are called to submit to You. God, we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that as such, that we are grafted in to Your family. That we are part of Your kingdom. God, that we have become the descendants of Abraham. The descendants of Isaac. And I thank You for that. God, I pray and ask that everyone here would be eager to turn from their sin, to see their sin for what it is. I pray that for me personally. God, that I would turn from it. That I would see my sin as rebellion against You. And God, turning from that, that I would warn the nations, proclaim the Gospel, that I would serve You, that I would go to the nations saying, repent and believe. And God, I pray that as we live out this life, this life on this earth that is not always easy, God, that we would hold on to Your promises, that we would wait for Your Son to return. God, that our eyes would be fixed on eternity and that we would praise You for Your faithfulness, praise You for Your promises, and that we would recognize that You will indeed reign over the house of Jacob forever and that Your kingdom will have no end. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.